Hello, friends. I wanted to do a quick shout out to Ben Burgess because I just finished his book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. I got to say, you have to read this book, especially if you are a member of the left, because this book is focused on the left and its various, I don't want to say pathologies, although maybe that's the right word, but definitely bad habits as of late, because we all know that our arguments are the correct arguments. We are, we know that our prescriptions for the problems that face the world are the correct prescriptions. We know that our analysis of capitalism is the correct analysis, yet somehow the rest of the people don't believe us when we tell them that. And that's the key thing that we need to learn how to do as a political movement is to become a mass movement where the majority of people believe the things we do. And Ben identifies various issues that the left uh, has that prevent us from being that mass movement. Um, you know, he he talks about the cases of uh, Dave Chappelle and Natalie Wynn, but also uh, deeper analyses of how why we are the way we are and what we need to do to change um, and become a movement that can actually win power and change people's lives for the better, because that is ultimately what our goal is, right? It's not to be a member of some cool club because let me break it to you, the left ain't that cool. We could be cooler, you know, or at least we have to become that if we want the rest of the people to want to join us. So go out and read Ben Burgess's Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. You won't regret it. It's short. It's fun. He's a very witty writer. He's very gregarious as well. You know, he's uh, he's both um, thorough, but also willing to play devil's advocate um, for the positions that he may uh, disagree with on. And so that gives it a very kind of holistic and comprehensive look. So Go out and read Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. You will not regret it. All right. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument, where we are building a smarter, funnier, and more strategically savvy left uh, one episode at a time. Uh, that uh, was, of course, uh, our, our good friend and comrade, uh, Nando Vila, uh, who uh, is, among many other things, the uh, co-host of Jacobin's uh, Weekends show uh, and is also, uh, most importantly, uh, one of the monthly guests on here uh, for our monthly uh, Sopranos recap uh, bonus episodes, um, which are, uh, you know, on hold, I hope, for not very long, but they are on hold because because uh, Mike Racine uh, is, uh, has, has just become a father. Uh, and so his, uh, his hands are full, but those will be back, uh, very soon, uh, as he, uh, as he alluded to, and I, I don't know if I've mentioned this or not before, but I have a book out, uh, canceling comedians, uh, while the world burns a critique of the contemporary left, uh, that, that is the book. It is available from, uh, everywhere the books are normally available from, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been very nice, of course, to, uh, to see it at various times up at number one in, uh, in different categories and, uh, on Amazon. Uh, I, it's also the, you know, take it with a grade of salt because they cut those categories up pretty finely and it's not always obvious how the algorithm assigns books to them. Uh, but it's still been nice to see, 
but of course, uh, the place that I'd be happiest if you bought the book uh, is uh, is not Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of those places, but uh, Red Emma's, uh, which is a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore. That's RedEmmas.org, uh, where you can get the book. Uh, and there, you know, if you're listening to this, thinking, "Hey, um, why is he always talking up Red Emma's?" You know, there 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 are bookstores in other cities besides Baltimore. Look, guys, if you have a uh, a radical or especially worker-owned uh, bookstore in your city, and you'd like it to uh, to get a little love uh, for for me to to mention it, you know, every uh, every third time or something, uh, just just shoot me a message, and and I'm uh, I'm happy to do so. Uh, but since that's the only worker cooperative I know of where you can order books from online in the U.S., uh, that's the one that I always mention. Um, Speaking of if you have a little, you know, radical bookstore in your town, uh, starting in in about June, you know, I, I think I'm, you know, I know it's a little complicated because people are still getting vaccinated and, and different places are on different schedules for opening up. Uh, but, you know, but I, I think, yeah, I think starting around June, if, if you want, um, you know, I would love to do some book events in person, uh, you know, not staring into a computer. So if, uh if you've got uh, if you've got that you know radical bookstore in, in your town and and you want me to come and talk about the book, do a little reading from the book, uh, sign some copies, I am more than happy to do that. I already have kind of tentative plans for one or two of those maybe, although you know um, still you know we're still a few steps away from from figuring it out. But I am more than happy to do that anywhere. Uh, see our uh, our friend. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, who is uh, the uh, host of Good Morning Comrade, a uh, radio show in New Orleans, I've, I've been on several times. Says Ben, come to New Orleans. I would, I would fucking love to go to New Orleans. Uh, set something up for me in New Orleans, and I will go to New Orleans. If you have a, uh, if again, if if there's a radical bookstore, if there's a DSA chapter, if there's something that wants to host me to come talk about the book in New Orleans, I will. I will go to New Orleans uh, with uh, with great happiness. Uh, so set it up and let me know, and I will, I will be I will be headed uh, headed down there. Um, you know, you know, get some. Uh, you know, I mean, God knows as things open up, you know, as as the uh, as as the pandemic winds down, and you know, more people get vaccinated, you know, get to, you know, go to uh, go to some bars and restaurants in New Orleans while I'm at it. That sounds actually kind of amazing. Um, but uh, in any case. Uh, later in the episode, I am uh, going to be joined uh, by our very good friend and comrade, uh, David Griscom, uh, co-host of uh, Left Reckoning. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, be, before that, you know, one of the people who made the Michael Brooks show tick uh, every uh, every single week. Um, and um, he is going to be talking about uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, his uh, his philosophy, his his uh, you know his thoughts about Marxism, his relationship to uh, the French and you know international communist movement, and since of course on this show uh, you know we do a, a mixture you know that's that's our thing of uh, kind of day to day sort of newsworthy left politics uh, and also. Uh, philosophy and theory and and debates and uh, debunking and all that sort of thing. Uh, when I saw uh, Griscom uh, do a stream for Left Reckoning, where he didn't talk about it extensively, although you know it, was, it ended up in the title of the stream, Sartre and Materialist Thought, uh, that you know, so I saw that he he'd done that. You know, the stream where he talked just a little bit about Sartre, and you know, given uh, given the combination 
you know, once we found out that he, he was interested in that, given the combination of uh, guest and, um, and topic, uh, we could really not not have him on to talk about that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect it's a perfect combination of uh, <laughs> of guests and topic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that, of course, is our producer Forrest, uh, who uh, who's uh, who's going to uh, be helping me uh, to do a little. Um, you know, we still don't have a name for this, but let's call it a uh, for now. Let's call it a debunk throwback uh, <laughs> that, uh, that that we're going to do uh, in a uh, in a minute a uh, a debunk style. Uh, you know, debunk style look at a uh, at a video uh, by a uh, YouTube tax shelter guru who calls himself the Nomad Capitalist. Um, you know, no comment on that. Uh, but uh, but in any case, um, I should also say that uh, David is you know being generous with his time and he's going to stick around uh, for uh, for the post game or at least for part of the post game. Uh, at uh, at which point um, we're also going to get into um, you know we'll we'll wrap up the discussion of Star Trek that hasn't ended yet but uh, but after that we're going to get into some more topical things uh, in um, such as uh, the uh, CIA's newfound embrace of uh, woke intersectionality uh, mm-hmm. such as some of the so fucking bad that that is the worst video I think I've seen this year and I was avoiding watching the full thing and just having <laughs> watched it like a few minutes ago that is the fucking worst thing I've ever seen yeah uh, <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about some of the highlights uh, from uh, sleepy Joe Biden's uh, State of the Union address uh, and, and other things and just kind of hang out, you know, a little bit looser in, uh, in the post game. Uh, if you're thinking, didn't think GTA had post games. Well, guys, that is just one of many, uh, many new features for, uh, for this exciting, uh, season two. Uh, and if, uh, in, and if you're, uh, watching this and, uh, and you're not a, uh, patron, uh, patron yet, yeah, something to think about, uh, hang out for that post game. Uh, and, uh, and if you're listening to this, well, you can head over there and listen to it, uh, as a, uh, as a podcast. Uh, but, uh, exactly, exactly. We support dictators of all ethnicities, all sexual orientations, you know, all gender identities, you know, that anybody who's willing to protect American oil interests, uh, the, uh, this, the CIA does not make distinctions. Uh, it is an amazing. Well, using, using someone's like Latina or like, I guess, like Latinx as they, uh, you know, like as it's phrased in the, in the intersectional um, vocabulary, like using, using that ethnicity specifically knowing the like atrocities that the CIA has committed for the last half century in Latin America is like absolutely like ghoulish on, like it's ghoulish on so many levels. Um, No, no, it's exactly. I mean, like the idea, you know, given uh, how many uh, Latinx people uh, have uh, have had uh, members of their family uh, murdered by death squads, uh, you know, and uh, and dictatorships propped up by the CIA. Like, there's something particularly distasteful about that. But uh, speaking of things that don't taste fairly very good, uh, we have this video by the Nomad Capitalist. I should say, uh, for context, that uh, he is responding. You know, this video was put out while we were on break, but he is uh, he's responding uh, <laughs> as Latinx contras exactly uh, contracts. Uh, so he's responding to 
an article that I wrote uh, for Jacobin Magazine at the uh, the end of last year. So it was actually the very end of last year. I believe it came out on New Year's Eve. And it's, it's kind of funny, actually, because uh, this is by far the most read article that I've ever written. Uh, in fact, I think it's like one of the top five most viewed articles on the history of Jacobin's website, uh, which is hilarious because the way it came about was that a couple days before the end of the year, I emailed uh, Bhaskar and Micah and Sean. And I was like, hey, um, I really like to get up to having published 52 articles this year. Is there something I could do real quick? And, uh, and uh, one of them, I, I think Sean suggested I could do something on the case against inherited wealth. I was like, oh yeah, I totally do that. Uh, so uh, somehow though, I think a lot of right-wingers uh, discovered this article and were sort of spreading it around to denounce it. And, uh, and this is one of the fruits of that. So uh, let's, let's watch the, uh, the nomad capitalists. There, there's a place where we're mostly going to watch it straight through before we comment on it, but there is one thing uh, that he's going to say pretty soon after the beginning that we are going to have to pause to talk about because I can't let this go without commenting on it. But after that, we'll play it straight through. Remember being a kid and reading Time magazine? It was very popular back then. And in the run-up to the 2000 presidential election, there was a little clip of an article about some wacky presidential candidate who wanted to have a maximum wage where I think it was $100,000 a year you could make. And after that, everyone got taxed at 100%. Okay. And that seemed crazy. All right. This is the place right at the beginning. I got to pause to talk about this because I cannot let this go. I know it's silly to stop to like 10 seconds in, but uh, it's also, I didn't, I didn't purposely stop it at his, like, his, like grimacing, uh, his, his grimacing, like, I, I don't even know what I'd call that, um, pain, pain face, I guess. <laughs> but Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, when he talks about this wacky presidential candidate in 2000, uh, he is talking about a friend of mine who is no longer with us, uh, but somebody who meant a lot to me. Uh, and and I actually genuinely regard as one of the most impressive people that I ever knew, uh, who's David McReynolds. So uh, David McReynolds, uh, if you don't know who he was, uh, I will actually, um, I'm not holding my book. I am holding a book written by another uh, late friend of mine, Michael Brooks, uh, called Against the Web. And in that book, uh, he has uh, a little description of David McReynolds which is a story that I told Michael, uh, I believe at the uh, end of 2018 or the beginning of 2019. I remember we were uh, getting dinner at, at like a little, um, I don't think it's exactly an Italian restaurant, but like a restaurant with Italian stuff at it uh, near where he lived in Brooklyn. And I told him this and, you know, he said, oh, that's amazing. And then it, you know, kind of came up later and he put it in the book. Uh, so let me just read this real quick. Uh, this reminds me of a story told by the late socialist and uh, war resistor David McReynolds, who was for decades a member of the now defunct Socialist Party of America, SPA. The SPA had a long and proud history dating back to Eugene V. Debs in the early 20th century. In its final decades, though, the party sometimes erred on the side of an exaggerated concern about Stalinism that led some of its leaders to downplay or ignore the far more real threat of American imperialism. Uh, this, con this culminated in a split over the war in Vietnam with some members supporting the intervention. I'll say parenthetically, I think at least not being opposed enough to it, right, would be the way to describe the position people like Max Shackman were taking at that point, and uh, some rejecting it. 
McReynolds, who was one of the very first people to publicly burn his draft card in 1965, uh, which is a uh, which is a classic picture you can still find all over the place. That's the one. Uh, David McReynolds and and, and various other uh, prominent war resistors burning their draft cards uh, in uh, in New York in 1965. I think it was actually the very first public draft card burning of the Vietnam era. Um, uh, was on the right side of that split, just as he landed on the right side of just about every other major debate of the left 20, the late 20th century. Uh, this story takes place eight years earlier than that, in 1957, eight years before uh, McReynolds burned his draft card. That year, the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik 1 satellite, which was the first human-made satellite to orbit Earth. McReynolds was watching coverage of the launch on a television in a bar in Greenwich Village, and in his excitement, he ran outside and started a conversation with the first person he saw. We did it. What? Sputnik. We put something into the sky that didn't come down. You mean the Russians did? No. We. Us. The human race. So that's David McReynolds. Um, he's, he's somebody who, um, you know, whatever. I mean, I didn't know well, but he, you know, Back when I was a, uh, a member of the Socialist Party, we, you know, extensively emailed and, and you know, we didn't always agree, but he was extremely kind to me. Uh, I, uh, I got high with him at a Socialist Party convention uh, in, uh, I, don't know, I don't remember what year that was, but, you know, but that that happened. And, you know, up until his death, he'd, you know, occasionally popped up to just comment on some personal photo or something. Um, and uh, he... He's an amazing. Uh, he's an amazing human being. That's who this. That's who this jackass is talking about. Is this wacky presidential candidate? Since he was the Socialist Party presidential candidate uh, in uh, the 2000 election, by everybody blamed Nader. Although I will say, uh, if you want to get mad at him uh, retroactively about this, uh, David did get more votes in uh, Florida than the uh, the Bush Gore difference. But uh, in any case. Um, when he ran for president in 2000, I think you can actually still find uh, the clip of McReynolds on uh, the Bill Maher show. Uh, oddly, funnily enough, arguing with Joe Rogan, who had a much more right-wing position back then about uh, like social democratic stuff uh, that he's, he's now kind of come around on in the Bernie era. Uh, but one of one of David- we're, we're expecting an apology, Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, come on, Joe, step up to the plate. Apologize for being disrespectful to David McReynolds 21 years ago. Uh, yeah, because it is kind of funny because, like, in that clip, McReynolds is saying some very Bernie like stuff, and Joe Rogan's kind of like, eh, that sounds crazy. Uh, but, uh, but that one is of so the, not that is so not fear factor, bro. Yeah, one of the uh, <laughs> uh, one of the things that what, what the nomad capitalist is referring to here, uh, that uh, David was advocating in the 2000 election was a maximum wage, but he's kind of misrepresenting what the proposal is here. The actual idea was to legally mandate that no company could pay like the highest paid, you know, employee, the CEO or whatever, uh, more than a certain number of times the salary of the average worker, which is an excellent idea. But in any case, uh, having, uh, having established that, uh, let's watch the rest of the video. See the time. This is not a communist country. That would never work. This guy is just a, a weirdo. But what's happened over the last 20 plus years is that kind of idea has gotten more popular. The idea is that billionaires shouldn't exist. Even millionaires shouldn't exist in some circles are becoming more and more popular. Today, I'm going to share with you a story not about 100% income tax, but about 100% inheritance in tax and the growing proposal that no one should be able to inherit any money. 
I am Andrew Henderson here at Nomad Capitalist. We help seven and eight figure entrepreneurs and investors who want to legally go where you're treated best. You can learn more at nomadcapitalist.com. I've got an article I wanted to share with you today uh, from Jacobin, 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 not sure what the name of the magazine is. Basically, they hate anyone who's ever accomplished anything. That's the point of the magazine. So if you hate the he knows what the magazine is called. For you. Now, Come on. Now, people have commented over the years. Andrew looks like a guy who inherited money. Total number of uh, total number of dollars I've inherited is zero. So I don't have a dog in this fight. But the idea that the headline "Abolish Inherited Wealth" that's the three word headline seems a little ridiculous. That you who makes the money is not allowed to keep it. You don't get to decide what you do with it. The great all powerful government has done such a bad job taking care of you in the last year. They will make the decisions. All right, here's the article from Ben Burgess. It starts off with a couple of long-winded paragraphs about the uh, the novel Hollywood, in which the idea is that a father will buy his son a house. The son will inherit it when the father dies. He'll do the same for his son, his son, his son, etc. The idea is, ten generations from now, you you pass on ten homes and you start to create this generational wealth. But the protagonist of that novel finds the idea ridiculous, thinking you should live for the moment. No delayed gratification, right? Which is why perhaps some of these people don't have the success that they think they should have. And other people do have success because those who have been successful learn how to delay gratification. But Ben, uh, Ben's article says, anyone who cares about creating a society without landlords should have the opposite concern as the father in this book. What if the family's holdings do accumulate as planned? In ways much more serious than petty real estate fortunes, inherited wealth has a massive effect in fueling economic inequality, and the problem is getting worse. As the most recent data I could find, says Ben, the amount of inherited wealth going from one generation to another each year is up 119% from 1989, even when inflation was taken into account. According to United Income founder Matt Fellows, a historically unprecedented amount of money is going to be flowing from one generation to next in the next few decades. And this is, for me, much of the, this is becoming the face of the Western world, where there's just a lot of statements that are made by people who haven't been successful, who haven't accumulated wealth, who have, in their, their allegory of, of the book, they've lived for the moment, they've spent their money, they're not going to be subject to a wealth tax because they have nothing to tax. No, no tax authority is going to come to their house and count how many TVs are hanging on their wall or how many Gucci bags are in their closet, so they don't have to worry about anything. So it's easy for them to say that you should be taxed. But beyond that, they, they, they simply say that merely having wealth is like you should just understand that that's a bad thing. 119% increase in, in wealth being passed on. Perhaps we should look at that from the perspective of what a great thing that people in general are creating more wealth and are passing it on to their, their families. But you know what, what I don't see around the world but I do see in the West is this idea of a zero-sum game. People are creating wealth and giving it to their kids, and that means someone else must be suffering. The right wing, Ben says, has done a good job of demonizing even modest efforts to tax these transfers, branding the tax on large estates as a ghoulish death tax. Well, I mean, what else do you call it? You die and you pay a tax on money you've already paid tax on. That's obviously ridiculous, Ben says, not explaining at all why it's obvious. But how would a better society handle the inheritance issue? So everything with these guys is about a better society and we're doing everything wrong. Let's put Ben Burgess in charge and see how quickly your economy tanks. That I can tell you. 
Socialists, he says, want to take the means of production, distribution, and exchange away from their current owners and bring them under social ownership. Some blueprints for what such a society might look like involve state ownership of nearly anything, like in Venezuela. I added that part. Or even eliminate money as a medium of exchange. You know, again, you look at a lot of the people who say, you know, why do Americans, for example, why do they, why do they dismiss socialism? There's, they say any successful economy has elements of capitalism and socialism. We're not against capitalism. We just like a socialized element, like in a Norway or in a Sweden. We don't want Venezuela. But yet, no, they do. Socialists want to take the means of productions away from their current owners. Why? Because they don't want you to pass it on to anybody because they're jealous that you have it because they think they can do a better job. This guy's writing for some magazine that I can't even pronounce, but he can do a better job with your money. He didn't create it, but if you give it to him, don't worry, he'll manage it. Yet somehow the 11th generation of your family with those 10 houses, they'll do a terrible job managing it. But this guy who writes about eliminating money as a medium of exchange for a living, he'll do a great job managing it. Ben says, I've argued that a more realistic vision of the kind of socialism we could bring about without waiting for massive technological progress to solve the logistical problems raised by trying to plan an entire economy would involve nationalizing the commanding heights, taking many important public goods out of the market entirely and bringing the remaining public center under worker ownership. These individual elements have all been successfully beta tested in the real world. No examples of that, of course. If you have an example, leave a comment below and I'd like to hear it. Uh, but the combination would mean the first society since the agricultural revolution that wouldn't be divided into a powerful ruling class and a subservient labor force. And so here we have it. Basically what people like this want to do. And by the way, these people are whispering into the ears of politicians on the fringe. And again, the fringe over the last 20 years has become more mainstream. Today's fringe, 10 or 20 years from now, could become relatively mainstream. And what I've said is uh, that... Other countries are coming up. Other people are getting opportunities. And this idea that being born in the US or Canada or Australia is your ticket to barely make it out of high school and get a high paying factory job and be taken care of for life and retire with a gold plated pension at 61 years old. Those days are over because we have great competition in the world. These people love the idea that they can go online and they can buy anything at the lowest price. They complain, they kvetch how it's made in China, but they still do it. And then, you know, somehow uh, they don't think that the idea of competition for work should be an issue. And so now, I mean, look at the idea that's, that's, that's prevalent now in the U.S. and some Western countries where nobody should have to work. Let's just have the government send them a check. Where does that come from? I guess one of the places it comes from is by just taking everyone's inheritance. Whatever you build, they take it. Now, I can tell you this. I don't think I would want to build as much if I knew that it would be taken away for the same reason that when I buy real estate, I don't buy leasehold property. I'm not buying a villa in Bali with a Bali with a 30 year lease or property with a 99 year lease. Maybe if you go to the UK, some of their leasehold properties where you can own it until, you know, the year 4,700 or something until the planet Zutron is in alignment, you know, maybe that you could consider that as, as basically being freehold, but, I don't want to buy property that I know 30 years from now I'm going to lose. So why would I want to create property and create wealth that I know when I die I'm going to lose? It's bad enough they want to take half of my money at the income tax level in most Western countries, and now they want to impose wealth taxes. And then some countries want these new what they call excess profit taxes to make sure no business is doing too well. <laughs> that would be a real problem. 
But now when you die, whatever scraps are left, they're going to take that away. And I guess redistribute that so that some people can simply not work. Let's have a two or $3,000 a month universal basic income because maybe someone's calling us to sit at home and paint. Why should they have to go and work for earning money as a medium of exchange? So let's go out and take the oil companies and let's go out and take all the businesses and let's nationalize them to create this workers paradise where there is no inequality. Except we've seen how that works time and time again in countries like Venezuela, where there's no inequality except for the government people doing the redistribution. They're doing pretty well. This is what is coming uh, more and more. Now, again, this may sound fringe, elements that are fringe, but the fact that this is popping up in my world, in the world that I live in with my team of researching tax trends uh, and researching new tax proposals and researching things that politicians are talking about, this is on the radar of some of them. This is what some of the people on the fringe in countries like the US, in Canada, and elsewhere are talking about as we need to move towards this. They're not going to say as politicians, let's get rid of money if they're actually an elected official. But there are politicians in the US right now who would agree with most of this and would say we should move towards saying nobody gets to inherit any money. And so if you have a family or if you plan on having a family and you have wealth, and plan to create more of it. I've talked to a lot of families recently who are making money in crypto. They're growing their businesses. They plan to sell their businesses. Some people are selling their businesses right now. Lots of people who are creating these eight and nine figure fortunes. I would not want to be bank banking entirely on the idea of being a citizen and resident of a Western country and thinking that my, my fortune is going to make it down to my children or it's going to make it to my charities of choice at my death. I think one thing I want to talk about more here at Nomad Capitalist in the years to come is how to do estate planning as a nomad capitalist, the things that I'm working on for myself to make sure that you are not tethered solely to a place where these kind of people will become more and more uh, in vogue with the population in the coming years. And here's why I say it will become more in vogue, because I travel around the world and I see how many economies where people don't think like this are growing, where jobs are being created. Uh, many of those jobs, or at least some of those jobs, are coming in lieu of jobs created in the countries where people like this are living. This guy doesn't have to get a job. And quite frankly, as there are fewer jobs available in places like the US and Canada just for showing up, guys like this are going to have a hard time working. And that's going to perpetuate a cycle of anger and victimhood and everything else. It's only going to lead to this perpetuating itself more and more. Uh, so if I have wealth that I want to pass on to my family, I'm not going to be tied to a place like the US or Canada or Australia or many Western countries, particularly the English speaking ones, where this is becoming increasingly of interest to the, the voters, uh, where they can say, you know what, 45% death tax, not enough. We're going to lower the numbers. We're going to subject more of your money to the estate tax. We're going to raise the rates. I saw one proposal, they wanted to make it 70%. They take 70% of your money when you die. By the way, you're seeing the same thing with wealth taxes right now, um, where people are saying, going to figure out how much the family farm to sell to pay the wealth tax. I'm not sitting on cash. I'm not a rich guy. I just own a farm that's kind of in value. Same thing would happen with the death tax. But that's what they want. They don't want your family to run your farm. They really don't. They want them to run your farm so they can run it into the ground. So that's why I think having assets out of the country, I think buying property in other countries that are more friendly to wealth. And I think having residents and citizenship that you can use as part of your estate plan, as you see what kind of crazy tax proposals come into place in the West is a very important thing to do. This is going to become more mainstream. How can Nomad Capitalist help you?
Yeah, let's let's not include his promo at the end. Uh, <laughs> so, he somehow looks worse. He somehow looks worse in his promo than he does on. Uh, I don't know. He did some kind of HD thing that does not flatter his yeah. skin. But yeah, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want uh, to get too personal here. But um, you know, dude, that's why you have me. I'm the. I'm the give them an argument. Uh, you know, attack dog over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so, uh, so without making any comments that would be unkind about shoulders or anything of that nature, uh, I will, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just say a few things about what we, uh, what we just heard. Uh, so one is that I want to start out by giving credit where credit's due. Uh, he does make an excellent point when he says that I know how, I think I know better than he, uh, than his heirs will how to spend his money, even though I work for a magazine whose name he can't pronounce, uh, for, uh, for, for the record, it's, it's Jack. Like the name Jack O, and then Bin, like trash bin. I didn't. I didn't believe that. Like he couldn't pronounce Jackman, but then he said the means of productions, and that's like the moment I was like, all right, no, he probably doesn't know how to pronounce Jackman. This. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so on on the more specific comment content of uh, of this video, um, first of all, uh, Venezuela has a less socialized economy. Uh, than Norway or Sweden. In fact, it has a less socialized economy than France. In fact, it had a less socialized economy than France at the height of Hugo Chavez's welfare state before austerity that's you know, happened because of the crisis there in the last you know several years. Um, when um, you know, which by the way, uh, you know, there's an argument about how much that to blame on currency currency mismanagement and other things. But if you want to blame it on the basic uh, reforms that Chavez put in, you have to account for the fact that for the first decade uh, that Chavez was in office, that was wildly successful. They cut poverty, uh, extreme poverty in half uh, in uh, in Venezuela. Uh, and there are a lot of other measures by which life was really improving, you know, before oil prices crashed, uh, the, you know, currency kind of spiraled out of control and there were other problems, uh, which and I'm, I'm not saying that to excuse the Venezuelan, you know, government for uh, for its decisions about those uh, or, or say everything is American sanctions, although God knows that's part of the equation. Uh, but I think if you want to be serious about this, um, even at the height of Chavez's welfare state, uh, there were like there was a smaller percentage of the Venezuelan population that worked for the public sector than the French population. So this idea that, oh, leftists say they only want Norway or Sweden, but they really want Venezuela, Norway and Sweden are much more radical and ambitious goals than Venezuela. Uh, you know, like what happened in Venezuela is really a sign of how bad American imperialism is in Latin America, not just American imperialism, but also those extremely entrenched local oligarchies, although the two are not historically unrelated, uh, because uh, just doing some extremely moderate incremental social democratic kind of reforms is enough to get coup attempts, uh, employer lockouts, various forms of violence, uh, the United States and its various vassals around the world recognizing uh, some idiot, you know, who who declared himself president uh, as the uh, as the legitimate president, etc. Right. So uh, this this idea that uh, that really we say we just want Nordic social democracy, but really we want to go all, all the way to Venezuela is completely ass backwards. Uh, it would be more accurate to say we don't just want Venezuela, we want Norway. And of course, uh, he is right though, I want much more than Norway. I want socialism. Uh, you know, no, like 
I, I think that it's useful to have those models of successful social democracy to show that social democratic programs like universal, you know, healthcare, free college, et cetera, uh, can, uh, you know, incredibly strong labor unions that can do sectoral bargaining can have really positive effects. Uh, but I don't think that's the end game. And I don't think it's even a stable way station uh, that capitalists given the chance will try to roll back all those things. And I think we need to go further. I think we need, I think we need actual socialism, uh, meaning as he said, social ownership of those means of productions. Uh, so uh, what do I think social ownership of, of the means of uh, production uh, would, uh, would look like? Well, uh, I, I referenced in passing the fact that uh, some of the most extreme proposals uh, involve eliminating money as a means of exchange. But of course, uh, what he either didn't notice or didn't register uh, or just chose not to emphasize is that I said that in passing as part of one sentence to say, but look, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about trying to come up with a realistic idea of what a fully socialist society could look like right now without waiting for some sort of developments in artificial intelligence to solve, you know, calculation problems about coordinating production with consumer needs or anything like that. Like right now, five minutes after the revolution, what could uh, socialism look like? Uh, and, uh, and, and what I say is that we can look at uh, what's, what's been successful in other contexts. Um, you know, as Richard Wolff is always saying, the Mondragon Corporation, giant worker-owned company in the Basque region of Spain shows that uh, worker cooperatives uh, can be a successful model in the private sector. Um, and of course, those, those Nordic social democracies show that you can you know, very successfully plan things like healthcare and education outside of the market entirely. Uh, and uh, I'd, I'd also say that, you know, we can, uh, you know, we can nationalize certain parts of the commanding heights of the economy, uh, crucially the, uh, the finance sector, uh, so that we could, um, uh, so we can, um, we can uh, guarantee the long-term stable dominance of worker ownership uh, in whatever sort of remaining private sector that you have, uh, because new firms will be started by grants uh, from publicly owned banks. Uh, so that's a very specific proposal. And I'm not even throwing that out there because I think that if we're lucky enough to get socialism at all, it's necessarily going to look exactly like anything that, you know, that, that, that I cook up or, you know, uh, Bhaskar Sankara, you know, for example, who talks about uh, that sort of proposal in his book, The Socialist Manifesto, cooks up right now. But just to give an indication of the fact that there, there are realistic ideas about what society should look like. So in the article, what I'm talking about is how inherited wealth specifically uh, would, um, like what would happen if you had that sort of combination of elements that I think could add up to a society without a capitalist class where democracy has been extended to the workplace. Well, what about inheritance? Because um, the actual point of the uh, reference to the Bukowski novel, Hollywood, uh, where uh, Hank Janaski is talking about uh, his dad, you know, talking to him about how he's going to leave him a house and he should leave his son a house and all that stuff. It was a kind of lighthearted hook, but the actual point is uh, inheritance is a way that wealth can snowball across generations, which can uh, lead to really extreme inequality. Uh, so if we don't want uh, to have a society uh, with lots of inequality, because that could lead, for example, to the reintroduction of capitalism, you know, some people having so much more than others, that the others have no realistic choice except to go to work for the first group of people. Uh, you know, what do we do? Now, I don't suggest, as he says, that nobody's ever, ever able to inherit anything. The title of the article is Abolish Inherited Wealth. 
Uh, in other words, the proposal is not that you can't like leave someone a car like Clint Eastwood at the end of Gran Torino. Uh, it's not that you can't leave somebody a house that they could actually live in. Uh, perhaps you could even leave somebody, you know, a extremely small business that wouldn't have any employees. Uh, but, uh, but what you can't do is have, you know, a bunch of different inheritance add up to a massive pool of, uh, of wealth that would then lead to having a society that once again has capitalists and landlords and all of those other things, uh, because there would be a upper cap on how much you could inherit. And above that cap, you'd have an estate tax of 100%. And by the way, I don't spell it out in the article because the article is really written from the point of view of thinking out loud sort of between socialists about how this could work. Uh, but the reason why it's absurd to call it a death tax, having in tax, uh, like an estate tax, which really the, mo the most accurate term would just be inheritance tax. The reason it's absurd to call that a death tax is the person who died is not the one being taxed. Uh, they're not being taxed for uh, dying. Nobody, the death has nothing to do with it, except that the death is what triggers the inheritance and the inheritance is what's being taxed. If you leave your you know, $20 million estate uh, to your heirs while you're still, you know, transfer it to your heirs while you're still alive, you know, they still have to pay the stupid tax. Uh, that's, that's not at all the point. Money is taxed typically when it changes hands. Uh, so, of course, you could say, well, it's already been taxed, but uh, you can uh, you could always say uh, brat tax would be good. I like that. Uh, you know, but you could say the same thing about any tax, right? A sales tax. Well, if you earn money uh, and then it's you have to pay an income tax on that and then you pay it, you pay taxes again at the grocery store and sales tax, then that's money that's already been taxed. And then that in turn, that same money then becomes the salaries of people who work uh, wages of the people who work at the grocery store, uh, the salaries of executives of the grocery store chain, the profits of shareholders if they have shareholders. And that money is taxed, even though it's already been taxed. The way the money works is it cycles around the system and it's taxed uh, at every point. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, that's, that's pretty goofy stuff. Um, I, I do actually finally, before I throw it to forest, uh, yeah, I do think in fact that look, I'm not saying I know better how to spend his money, this money than uh, his heirs will. Uh, I mean, I'm just a guy who works for a magazine who he can't, you know, whose name he can't pronounce. Uh, I'm saying that the public at large democratically is in fact more able to come up with good uses uh, for that money. Uh, because I think that the, uh, that a democratic government uh, with you know, public participation is a lot more likely to spend that money on things like, um, you know, healthcare, education, childcare, you know, stuff that I think is probably more important than uh, guaranteeing that his heirs won't have to work. So that's my thought. Forrest, do you have any uh, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're uh, right on point with the with the death tax part of it. Um, I mean, it's interesting that in the video he's like, you know, why would I work so hard if I know that, you know, everyone's going to, like the government's just going to take away my money when I'm done. You're dead at that point. Like, you know what I mean? They're not taking anything away from you. Um, you know, they're taking it away from your heirs, which I think a hundred percent like, should. I mean, the reason that, you know, that um, conservatives and like, you know, right wing people are so against the the idea of a inheritance tax or like a wealth tax or any. I mean, anything like that is is the fact that they want to keep that money in a very small pool of people forever. 
you know, like like setting up their heirs to be in the same, um, you know, the same class as them pretty much indefinitely. So, I mean, I don't know. I think that that, that kind of stops the economy from ever being different than it is now or and it stops workers from having power and you know it's 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 ghoulish is what it is um no no it is and you know by the way look i want everybody to be able to work less uh which is one of the reasons that i think it would be good to uh to go beyond even norway never mind venezuela and have workers control the means of production because uh if under capitalism when there's new technology, uh, some jobs are automated away. Some people just lose their jobs and have to uh, scrape by until they can find a new one. And some people have to work as hard as ever, potentially under democratic socialism. Uh, everybody could just vote themselves fewer hours, you know, with, with no loss in, uh, in living standard. And look, ultimately, who knows? Technological singularity, God knows, maybe none of us uh, will, will have to work. Maybe so much will be automated away. Uh, in the uh, in the distant future, that uh, that we can just have, um, you know, that whatever work still needs to be done by humans can just be done by everybody pursuing their passion projects without it being tied to income, uh, like like Karl Marx speculated in his fragment on machines. Maybe that'll happen, uh, but until then, uh, <laughs> I don't want some people to not have to work uh, because uh, their their dad. Uh, listen to this guy's advice about uh, capital flight and tax shelters uh, and some people to have to uh, to work uh, their whole lives and barely get by, uh, you know, because because they, you know, because their parents uh, were not in that category. So. So, yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah. I mean, inherited inherited wealth, I think, also is one of the easiest things for us on the left to kind of attack because, you know, you know, watching even like even watching like the media version of capitalism, like, you know, like, because I, I always feel like families like the Kardashians or something like that are like kind of billionaires trying to build parasocial relationships with the general public. So that in, in, a, in, in a situation where, um, you know, like the workers start to rise up or there's any kind of animosity between classes and class consciousness develops, you know, we suddenly have these weird parasocial relationships where we're like, oh, look at these like media billionaires that aren't as, or like millionaires that aren't as, you know, ghoulish and evil as like the ones that, that we're led to believe. So I think even in that case, though, like, you know, uh, people really do resent the like the fact that just generation after generation after generation inherits this wealth while other generations kind of in like a very futile way, like, you know, like suffer under wage labor. Um, so I think, you know, as, as a as a thing for leftists to really go after, I think inherited wealth is is a really good one. But, you know, it's really it's really like weird that. I mean, I think Nomad Capitalist, this channel is interesting because he's not a very um, sophisticated propagandist, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. he's, yeah. yeah although, although I do think, I do find it interesting. He acknowledges in the video uh, that although he's got some wacky ideas about the causation, he acknowledges uh, that uh, part of the reason for socialist ideas having more appeal now is because so many people are hurting financially or unemployed, you know, et cetera. Uh, which one might think would justify those ideas uh, that, you know, to try to do something about that situation. Uh, obviously he thinks people should, uh, should pull themselves up by, uh, by their bootstraps. I will, uh, I'll leave that to the judgment of the audience. But meanwhile, I want to switch gears um, and um, show you guys a uh, preview of the patron bonus episodes coming out on Thursday 
Uh, so that's uh, season two, episode two, uh, which is a um, an interview with uh, Derek Davison uh, about um, an article that he wrote in uh, Jacobin, uh, not about the domestic policy stuff uh, that we've been talking about, uh, but about Joe Biden's uh, horrendous, uh, I'll use the word, although he, he says he didn't write the headline in Jacobin, uh, you know, uh, but I'll call it horrendous, uh, Joe Biden's horrendous foreign policy. All right. I'm now joined uh, by Derek Davison, uh, who, among many other things, is the author of, uh, of this article uh, in Jacobin. Um, you know, Joe Biden's foreign policy has, uh, has been horrendous. Um, wanted to uh, not my headline not my headline if anybody wants to get mad at me <laughs> all right so uh so it has a bit horrendous it's actually been fine <laughs> i wouldn't go that far okay <laughs> uh well having derek on uh for uh, for a couple reasons uh, beyond proving that uh daniel bester is not the only person who we ever talked to about foreign policy on this show <laughs> um He's uh, he's also somebody I've I've been uh, I've been reading his stuff and, and listening to him elsewhere for uh, for a long time, so it seemed uh, well past time. Uh, but yeah, this this article is uh, you know the uh, whether or not you'd uh, you know you'd use uh, you know that particular term uh, <laughs> is is a pretty uh, is a pretty damning indictment on a lot of counts. I think more so because the tone of the article itself is pretty understated. Like it's 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 not like um, uh, you know, like they, they, there aren't sentences in this article, like, you know, Joe Biden is an imperialist monster or anything like that. In fact, what you do in the article is you say, look, obviously I'm a lefty. I would, you know, I have some incredibly deep disagreements, you know, with Biden's uh, worldview about sure. you know, what the role of the U S in the world would be, et cetera. But instead of focusing on that, what you actually do in the article is you say, uh, look, let's judge Biden by his own standards. Here's a, right. Uh, uh, right. So you want to tell us about the uh, the article that Biden himself, you know, wrote or put his name on that you uh, addressed in the piece? Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I mean, a full confession. Um, like the you know, Jacobin asked me to write something on the first hundred days of Joe Biden's foreign policy, and I, I've always found the like hundred days thing to be a little silly because nobody does. I know we can do anything in a hundred days. And, and certainly in, in the case of foreign policy, it's very difficult uh, to get a bead on somebody's foreign policy in a hundred days. I think it's very difficult to get a bead on somebody's foreign policy uh, until they've faced uh, a, a significant kind of unexpected challenge. Um, and that can happen at any time, but typically, you know, doesn't happen in the first three months of a presidency. Um, but I thought, you, you know, you mentioned like nine 11 is the obvious one, but also right. the Arab spring with Obama, which happened like three right. years into his presidency. Right. And that's when you really get a sense of what somebody's worldview is, I think, and, and, you know, how they can be expected to conduct foreign policy, um, uh, when they kind of get, you know, taken off the, off the tracks a little bit. Um, but what we do have in, in Biden's case is, uh, this pretty detailed, uh, I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of it's boilerplate, but he at least, you know, went to the trouble of kind of putting together this extended, um, piece on what his foreign policy might look at, which was, uh, published by foreign affairs in March, uh, of last year during the 
uh, you know, kind of end of the primary as he was gearing up for the general election. Um, and it, it it's called Why America Must Lead Again. I mean, that's the title, which uh, obviously <laughs> I have some fundamental problems with the framing already. Um, but again, I don't, you know, I don't know that it's fair to make sweeping judgments uh, at this stage. So I thought instead of doing that, why don't we, you know, kind of go through what Biden himself said he intended to do uh, in in terms of kind of shifting away from Donald Trump's foreign policy and and you know see how he's doing on those in those areas so far and I even by his own standards I don't think he's doing very well is is the you know main thrust of the piece yeah so uh, you know you, you mentioned here that uh, that he has three big headings uh, renewing democracy at home a foreign policy for the middle class which by the way, I know what he means, but I mean just just as a as a, as a combination of words, like just the, the pure, <laughs> it's like, like the pure of, the, of, of the Democrat yes. brain and that like way of putting together <laughs> words is just amazing. You know? it's like, uh, that's like something that you know. I'm sure they my, spent. I'm sure they spent a, a fair amount of time just finally <laughs> crafting that little phrase there. Exactly. There was like a a room full of like those. Uh, those executive robots from Futurama, you know, who decide which TV shows, you know, just you know, determining, you know, it's like, no, let's call it a foreign policy for the middle class. So foreign policy for the middle class, and uh, my favorite, back at the head of the table, since obviously that is that's where America belongs. You have to be, yeah, at the head of the table. Um, and in all, uh, in all three cases, you know, you you say that. Um, you know, especially, you know, especially the first one, you know, but, uh, but in all three, that there is this enormous gap between, uh, between Biden's uh, declared goals and, uh, and, and what he's, uh, and what he's done so far, uh, because part of, part of what he says about renewing democracy uh, is that, uh, you know, that he's going to be all about, uh, I mean, I know it's a little bit confusing because it's renewing democracy at home, uh, but it's uh, but you know he says that he's going to have a foreign policy that's that's going to uh, to really signal you know America's commitment to, uh, to to democracy by you know by not right. um, you know by not coddling despotism and you know and that sort of thing. So how, how's he doing there? Um, well, I mean, the, the you're right. I mean, there's a there's a bunch of stuff in there that sort of we need to make America the great example for democracy that I guess it was before. I I don't know. Um, at least in Biden's mind, the kind of great example for democracy around the world. Um, and a lot of that, again, you know, is is a it's domestic policy, which I really wasn't you know setting out to write about. And B, a lot of it is you know things like policing reforms, voting rights uh, protections changes to you know education that require a lot of congressional input and again it's you know we're at three months in you can't expect especially with this congress to you know to have accomplished uh, very much there so i you know i didn't want to like dig too deeply into that uh, yeah. but he does mention a couple of specific things and one is uh he talks about reversing the trump administration's very punitive refugee policy, um, you know, getting back to a, to kind of pre-Trump levels and then even beyond in terms of uh, refugee admissions. And, and he's already 
kind of just punted on that um, and was punting as I was sort of, you know, writing the piece. There was, uh, uh, you know, just last month they announced, the administration announced they weren't going to change the, the 2021 refugee admissions cap, the Trump set, which was a pitiful 15,000. Uh, and you know, they took a lot of heat for, for that. And, you know, like a day later or something, I think, uh, made this, you know, show of announcing, well, we're going to revisit this in May and maybe we'll announce a new cap then. Uh, there's no reason to believe that they were actually going to do that until they got, uh, you know, all the public outcry. But this is like, you know, I, I kind of started with this because it's a straight up, failure to do a very specific thing that he said he was going to do uh, in this foreign affairs piece. Um, then, you know, he gets into the idea of, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it's also worth like taking a beat on this because this is, uh, I mean, you know, even from a foreign policy perspective uh, like this, this is something that, uh, that often like makes me really mad because, you know, there, there is a kind of pattern that always happens where something bad happens somewhere in the world. And uh, and there's this immediate discussion about how America needs to do something about it. And even aside from the fact that in many specific cases, something bad is, you know, partially caused by American policies, uh, you know, but even taking that out of the equation, uh, like it never seems to be counted as doing something that you could just like let in a vast, uh, you know, a vast number of the people who are affected by these situations. Right. Well, that yeah, that's that's never as even even when it is, as you say, uh, you know, the main kind of issue when we talk about refugees and migrants uh, is people coming from Central America, where it's absolutely, you know, it, to a large extent caused by past U.S. policy. I mean, that's created uh, the environment that these people are fleeing. Um, and, and even in that case, it's it's never really like, why don't we? let more of these people in to escape those conditions. Um, now, Biden has talked about, you know, uh, upping aid to Central America to deal with the root causes of migration, but there have been, uh, you know, people have looked at um, what that money is earmarked for, and it's basically the same stuff. It's beefing up security forces. It's, um, you know, uh, capitalist investments, you know, creating the same or fueling the same kinds of uh, policies and conditions that we've been fueling for decades now that have caused uh, such a toxic environment that that people are fleeing in in high numbers. Yeah, and and you you mentioned uh, sort of militarized, you know, policing. You know, I assume a lot of that's about drug enforcement. Increase. I mean, increasingly, it's about migrant enforcement. I mean, it's, you know, beefing up Mexican uh, security forces and Guatemalan security forces so they can stop the migrants that, that are created. But yeah, you're just sort of militarizing these police forces to, to an extent where they're, uh, you know, better able to brutalize the populations there. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, a cycle. You uh, keep fueling these security states that then generate more migrants. So you give them more, you, you provide more money for the security state to try and stop the migrants that you're creating. It's, it's not good policy in addition to being, you know, kind of contrary to uh, what Biden seems to think he wants to do. Yeah. And they've said that they're uh, so, I mean, as you said, as you're writing the articles, it's kind of playing out, but um, they first announced that the cap of the number of refugees that were going to be let in was going to be the same. As, uh, as where Trump said it, which right. is you know, 
amazing uh considering you know the that how much I mean, criticism they gave him for that i mean and rightly so i mean it was a a, a pitiful you know kind of pathetic number uh, 15,000 for, for the entire year. Uh, and he was, you know, Democrats criticized him heavily for that, rightly so. And then to have the Biden administration say, well, we've thought about it and we're just going to keep that number the way, you know, where it is, 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 you know, it's, it's laughable. It's, uh, you have to laugh to keep from crying, I think. All right. I'm now joined, uh, by All right. So that's Derek Davison uh, talking about his uh, Jacobin article about Biden's foreign policy. Uh, it's a really good discussion. If you want to watch the uh, the whole thing without waiting until whenever it's unlocked, uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash Ben Burgess, uh, as well as those weekly uh, Thursday episodes. Uh, you also get uh, the uh, post games uh, every, uh, every Monday night after we all turn to pumpkins here at 930. Uh, as uh, as we'll now do, uh, you also get monthly uh, movie uh, you know Discord movie nights. Uh, we which uh, so far we did uh, Judas and the Black Messiah and uh, No Bad Land for that. You also get uh, monthly um, uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats, and access to the Discord itself. And best of all, uh, you help to support the uh, the work we're doing here. Uh, so if you like that work, please do uh, consider. Uh, consider doing that. Uh, we are about to bring on the great David Griscom, uh, but before we do that, uh, there are a couple of just real plug, uh, plug plugs we uh, we want to make. Uh, so you had one for us. You're muted. Yeah. Um, tomorrow um, we are. Well, Leisha is going to um, unlock the last illicit history that we did um, with Michael. Um, her Vic and Vic and her have started doing uh, illicit histories again. This is the uh, this is the last um, the last one we did, and it was set to unlock the the, the day actually, or it was set to uh, premiere for patrons. I think the day that Michael passed, so it, it kind of got it got swept up in the um, yeah. you know in, in in everything that that happened after that. But I'm really happy that it's finally um, going to premiere. It was the longest one that we did. Um, it has Derek Davison, like oddly enough, as as the narrator in it. But it was like a, I think it was, I think it's 18 minutes. It's an 18 minute deep dive into Ooh. our uh, Latin American policy ever since FDR. So that's why well, it's called Latin America's bad neighbor. Well, I'm very, I'm very happy that it's, it's finally out there. I, I know that those illicit histories meant a lot to him. Uh, I remember being at his, uh, one of the times I stayed at his and his girlfriend's apartment, uh, him like kind of setting me up on the couch and making me watch that, uh, that one about Michael Manley in Jamaica. Uh, you know, which was, you know, he's just so damn proud of that thing. So, um, so anyway, that was the, to- yeah, that was the first one I was, uh, that I like, cause originally they just had me like cut the audio for them, but like, that was the first one I ever added uh video to as well. So I remember, um, like promoting that on my Facebook for like weeks on end being like, we just did like this really cool, like Alyssa history on Jamaica and the CIA. And like, I don't know. I was like, you know, it's a great one. I've always thought that was, that was one that you could show to like, you're not very political brother-in-law who loves gangster movies and, yeah. and, and, and he'd get a kick out of it. And he'd also learn some stuff about imperialism and socialism and, you know, uh, resistance movements and, uh, the global South. So it would be great all around. Uh, so yeah, do check that out. Uh, glad that that's finally coming out. Uh, you know, one last thing, you know, there's just no really natural time to, uh, to stick it in, but I did want to stick this in. I'm teaching a class an online class in June, 
uh, called uh, Logic and Politics, uh, How to Make an Argument. Uh, so that is at um, uh, Renegade University. Uh, so uh, the uh, that's just go to renegadeuniversity.com and you can find that. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's run by, well, I mean, not by himself, he has partners, but by Thaddeus Russell, who's been a past guest and I've vigorously disagreed with on many topics. Uh, but uh, he, he likes to have, you know, people who he thinks have something to contribute, who disagree with him, come on. Um, the So Heidi Matthews has, has done stuff at Renegade University. Um, Michael Brooks was a guest lecturer at Renegade University. Uh, you can watch his appearance there from last June on, uh, on YouTube. So I'm excited about that. And if you are interested in signing up for that, uh, you get an early bird discount if you do that before May 10th. Uh, so again, that's renegadeuniversity.com uh, to uh, go sign up for that course if you're interested. Uh, but uh, I want to get to David. So uh, let's uh, let's play. We have a very brief clip to uh, actually, you know what? Let's 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 bring on David, and then once he's on, we'll uh, we'll, we'll play the clip. You, uh, this has been far too uh, far too much of this episode has passed Griscom list. So uh, David Griscom, uh, among other things, co-host of Left Reckoning. Uh, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing pretty good. It's good to see uh, both of you and Forrest. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's 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 been an okay day. Although I did get some uh, some very bad news about an hour ago. Apparently, uh, Ben Shapiro was publishing another book, and so because it's kind of a core brand proposition to make fun of him, I, I I'm gonna have to read that, which I'm not looking forward to. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. Um, man, you got me. We're. I mean, it's been a tough day too. I mean, uh, Bill and Melinda are no more. I know, I know. I, I'm not like I really thought they could make it work. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. been uh, it's been it's been hard for all for all the boys, but uh, we'll we'll buck up and then we'll you know we'll ride again. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, so, uh, so the one of the reasons you know I, I, I had you on. I mean, obviously, I always uh, enjoy hanging out, but also uh, you did a, a stream for uh, for Left Reckoning in which you. Uh, kind of briefly mentioned uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, and, and some mm -hmm. of his thoughts about Marxism. And uh, like I said earlier in the show, that's a combination of, you know, once that interest has been expressed, I mean, that's just blood in the water at that point. That's a combination of guest and topic we can't not do on the show. That would be ridiculous. Uh, so, uh, so Forrest, do you have the uh, ContraPoints clip to set this up? Postmodernism is skepticism about modernism. So whereas modernists try to create eternal and universal theories about reality, history, and humanity, postmodernists say, actually, no, that's not possible. For example, the French postmodernist Michel Foucault Sargon, you little goose, Michel Foucault wrote intellectual histories of subjects like psychiatry, medicine, and criminal justice, in which he argued that we should not understand these histories as straightforward progressions toward liberty and scientific truth, but rather as mere shifts in the way that power orders our institutions and populations. The other postmodernist I've actually read a lot of is Richard Rorty. Yeah, fuck you, Derrida. If you wanted me to read you, you should have been easier to read. Rorty advocates an attitude toward knowledge he calls ironism, irony being the skeptical caution with which we should regard our own beliefs and our awareness that our vocabulary for describing and understanding the world is not the final or best vocabulary. All right, that's enough explaining. And my nails are done. Check it out. Do you enjoy having long, glamorous nails? But do lesbians and queer girls keep glaring at them with barely concealed visceral rage? Well, 
I have a solution for you. The bisexual manicure. One hand for the V, one hand for the D. Both for degeneracy. It's absolutely filthy. So we've got all the pieces on the table. Now we've just got to put the puzzle together. On the one hand, we have Marxism, a fundamentally modernist worldview that theorizes the human condition in economic terms. On the other hand, we have postmodernism, a skeptical worldview that denies our capacity to know any universal truths about anything. On the face of it, it would seem these two ideas are not compatible. And there is an extensive history of dispute between them, with, for instance, the Marxist Sartre calling Foucault the last barricade the bourgeoisie can erect against Marx. And of course, as we all know, when Foucault died, capitalism did end forever. <laughs> uh, Get me worked up over here <laughs> before we get started. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so that was in the context of uh, of, of Natalie debunking uh, Jordan Peterson's claim that postmodernism and Marxism are basically the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, and which uh, and you know she's she's obviously having a little fun at uh, at Sartre's expense there at the uh, at the very end of it, uh, but it does give you uh, give you some sense of that of that conflict, right? So. Uh, so I, I guess just to just to kind of set this you know set this up so we can at least sort of set the stage for this and and get the um, and, and get some of the fundamentals in place you know before we uh, before we have to go to the post game uh, what's uh, like like what so Sartre is, a, is is an existentialist so so what is that and and then how does his relationship to Marxism kind of fit in. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I should preface these things with, you know, I'm not unlike uh, my comrade on the other side here, a philosopher, a professor of philosophy, but as somebody who spent a good amount of time when I was at school studying philosophy, particularly because it basically allowed me to do uh, two majors in political theory, right? Because I, I was a double major in political theory in the political science department and uh, a major in philosophy with a specialization in political theory. <laughs> uh, so I just found a way to rig the system there. But um, yeah, I mean, existentialism means a lot of different things and there's a lot of people who are included in the movement. And when you deal with Sartre as a thinker, um, sometimes it's better to just sort of limit yourself to him and his work. Right. Um, just because, yeah, it means, you know, uh, you know, his friend, uh, you know, his friend and then later like Nemesis Camus has like a very different conception of what this is, um, as did obviously, uh, you know, one of Sartre's uh, teachers, uh, you know, Heidegger. Um, obviously went in a completely other direction later in life. Um, but, you know, for Sartre and where it pertains to Marxism, the way I think the simplest way to, to uh, explain what existentialism is, is it's, I mean, there's the two like big dictates of, 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 uh, of, of Sartre, right? He says like man is condemned to be free, right? And that existence uh, precedes essence. And what he means by that is that if there is no God or order to the world in that sense, um, then we actually have to deal with the fact that we have, you know, this kind of radical freedom, right? That we aren't born with these kind of, you know, this essence in us. It's actually something that we create, right? Um, so fundamentally existentialism, especially the way that Sartre would, you know, define it, it's a philosophy of freedom. And it's very much focused on the individual. Uh, which is why it can be a little bit of a difficult philosophy for some uh, to be able to merge with Marxism. And I don't think, uh, you know, just as a preface, um, we'll talk a little bit about why I've been interested in this question, um, primarily uh, Sartre's book, 
um, in search of a method, which is a really interesting sort of criticism mm -hmm. of, of like a loving, it's like a criticism from within of Marxism, specifically a historical Marxism in like 1960. Um, you know, this is when the, you know, trickles are starting to, to, you know, to reach out to the Western world about actually what Stalinism had meant, um, what this philosophy and political practice was in, uh, in actuality. Um, but we'll get all to that in just a second. Um, you know, so, so for Sartre, it's a, you know, it's a question. Existentialism is a philosophy of freedom, but it's also a philosophy that's very much, um, you know, rooted in, in the individual. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, I want to take just a minute to make sure everybody is following what you're saying there about uh, essence and, and existence, right? So uh, the so existence just means what it always means, existing, and uh, essence means like the, uh, the the point or the purpose, uh, the meaning, you know, of of life. And so the essentialist view, which the most obvious form is like religious essentialism, that the meaning of your life comes from God, mm. uh, that you know God has given you a certain purpose and maybe a free will about whether to accept or reject that purpose, but that's that's basically where it comes from. Uh, whereas, uh, so that's essentialism. Existentialism says that you don't have one that's that's built in, uh, waiting for you, uh, you know, or even waiting for you to freely choose whether to accept, you know, accept it or reject it. Uh, you can only get it by creating it through your own free choices. Mm -hmm. uh, so I always, I'm not going to play it on the stream because I've gotten incredibly paranoid about copyright because we've been burned so many times. But uh, uh, I always think if there's like a little 20 second clip that I like to play in class from uh, the TV show, Rick and Morty, where, uh, where, where Rick has built this, this little robot to, uh, uh, to pass butter at the dinner table and, uh, and but the robot is sentient and the robot says, what is my purpose? And Rick says, I have to pass butter. And then the robot just slumps. Oh my god! Right, you know that's that's, that's it, right? You know, so um, you know, existentialism says that even if there was a god, you know, you can't get your your purpose that way, right? You can only define it by your free choices. So uh, Marx, so uh, Sartre has this uh, this essay, Existentialism as a Humanism, where he gives this example of, uh, and this is this is good too because it leads us back into the politics of. Uh, during World War II, you know, when the Germans were occupying uh, France, mm -hmm. uh, there's this uh, student who came to him for uh, for advice uh, and said that he was like really torn because on the one hand, uh, he felt that he had this patriotic obligation to join the resistance and help drop, you know, the free French forces maybe and, uh, and help drive the Nazis out of the country. Uh, and I think also because well, he had a brother who'd been killed by the Nazis, he felt the need to avenge. On the other hand, he was the sole support of his mother and he was really worried about what his mother had, what would happen to his mother without him. And he didn't know what to do. And Sartre didn't tell him anything useful, but he told him like, basically like, yeah, figure it out. Right. Like that, like at Sartre's point with this example is that it's, there's no like pre-existing right answer. You know, he just sort of mm -hmm. has to find through his own choices. What's, what's most important to him. So as you say, this is very much about, uh, this is all very much taking place at the level of individual human lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Marxism uh, is, is a view that, you know, may not be incompatible with that. Sartre didn't ultimately think it was, but it's a, uh, but it's, it's a view that, that like Marxism, whatever else is, is on the most obvious level about this entirely different level of analysis. It's about, you know, social classes, economic systems, you know, collective, you know, struggle to, uh, to, to achieve a different economic system. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
you know, so how 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 does Star Trek kind of try to 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 navigate this? Because he he does get very, you know, I mean, he's very um, at various points in his life, right? He's sort of aligned with the uh, the the PCF, the French Communist Party, or very critical of it. But even when he's very critical of it, he's being very critical of it from like a distant Marxist perspective. So mm-hmm. I mean, how does he try to reconcile all of this. Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to make like one more quick point uh, too about like this conception of freedom and how it relates to society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he has a very, you know, inflammatory quote about freedom and, and the German occupation, the Nazi occupation of France. Right. And he says we were never like something along the lines like we were never freer than we were under occupation. Right. right. And he's not just I mean, he's obviously doing it for effect, but there's a really uh, critical point there to understand Sartre's kind of, uh, you know, philosophy um which is that what he means by that is it made you have to decide every day am i going to stand in line do what i'm told you know just act as if everything's normal right or am i going to actively resist and the freedom that sart means by that is obviously not political freedom and that you could do whatever i mean in a sense this is the thing that some people get really some people get really worked about this point by sart it's not people think that sort like encouraging you to always resist under any circumstances. Um, you know, people think that that's what he means by that. He's actually not even making an argument about what you should or should not do as much as saying you need to be able to grapple with and wrestle with the fact that you have your own freedom, even if the consequences make you do a certain thing. Right. So like what I mean by that is like, you know, it, it might not be the best thing to run out under occupation and just go, f- you know, fighting any Nazi that you see. Right. Because you probably get killed. But you can never forget that that's like an actual possibility that you actually do have this radical freedom and you make choices. That's like in the most extreme example. Right. When you're dealing with Nazi occupation, uh, you either are actively resisting or are you know just trying to live your life, um, keeping your head down. Another example of this, and this is why Marx starts to interact with socialism and communism as such an important philosophy of his time, is he really did not like how um, economic determinants affected people's uh, thinking about their own freedom, right? So people would say, oh, I can't do this because I don't have the money to do that. Or if I make this move, then I might lose my job, Um, you know. And basically through that, um, people are forgetting their own freedom and their own potential in the sense, especially by treating capitalism, the system where you have to go into work and sell your labor for a predetermined amount of time, um, treating that as something natural and not as something that is a human made system, right? So like these are the kind of on the individual level uh, where those like, so it's not just an individual's philosophy and in that it's like, I'm just sitting in a room and imagining the world around me as much as it, it's, it's saying like, there is like a, a, a focus on, you know, our own individual radical freedom here. And the consequences of that are extreme. And a lot of people spend a lot of time denying themselves uh, this like idea of, of, of freedom that they do have. And instead, you know, completely, you know, telling themselves that their lives are only determined by outside factors, right? Yeah, uh, and, and I even think like in uh, being in nothingness, uh, which is which is the book that's where he's just doing, you know, comes before the sort of grappling with Marxism. He's he's, mm-hmm. he's just doing pure existentialism. Uh, one of his uh, one of his examples is a waiter uh, is about a waiter who's uh, who's 
because of his his job, right? You know, he's he's sort of going through the motions and, and playing this 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 role, this this kind of character that's that's imposed on him, you know, mm-hmm. by by the fact that he's he's doing this uh, for uh, you know for for work uh, and uh, and he's and which is you know contrasted to uh, to to this idea that you should be acting, you know. I mean, it's it's kind of funny actually. The phrase "bad faith." Is uh, is has, has become incredibly popular on the online left, and I'm not always crazy about that obsession, you know, with what counts as good faith and what counts as bad faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but I, I think people are ultimately getting it from uh, from Sartre, who uh, who talks about acting in good faith, you know, when you're um, when you're sort of acknowledging and taking ownership of the fact that you know you are who you you choose to be, you know, that that uh, that your essence comes from. These uh, these free choices uh, that uh, that you're making uh, and, mm-hmm. and acting in bad faith is is when you're you're denying that right and you're sort of acting as if things are out of your control uh, in in a certain way uh, and so as you say so you know like the interest in in you know Marxism and socialism and communism comes in uh, you know one obvious way that that comes in I mean besides obviously the fact that uh, you know his country was invaded and occupied by uh, by the Nazis and you know uh, French communists were incredibly important in resisting that and the, you know, the sort of larger politics, the war and all that obviously are a big factor, but like a sort of more purely philosophical reason uh, is, is that, well, I mean, if you have to, for your work, right, to make a living, if you're kind of compelled to, uh, to just do whatever your boss says all day uh, and, uh, and, and act, you know, and that sort of shapes all of your actions, then that's kind of uh, that's kind of compelled bad faith. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and yeah, I think this is a kind of perfect uh, jumping-off point to sort of looking at you know search for a method as as a text. And there's a lot in in the book. It's actually quite um, short, obviously compared mm-hmm. to uh, his other huge tomes. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's almost like a preface that you almost should read. If, if I were like, you know, a philosophy professor, which I'm not, or if I was somebody who had the time and interest to really spend time, you know, with all these questions, you know, you have to read his big uh, book, you know, on, on critique of dialectical reason, um, which is sort of the, it, that covers a lot of different stuff that's not even touched upon in Search for a Method, but that's like the full accounting of a, a lot of these different paths that he's coming into in his criticism of Marxism as it was existing in 1960. But anyway, um, you know, I mean, the reason it's an interesting text, the reason that I have sort of come back to it recently um, is that he makes this, um, he makes this argument that Marxism is the dominant philosophy of his time. Um, And what he means by that is not necessarily that it's like the most popular or anything like that. But it's the philosophy that um, has its own terms and like understanding of the world in a way that existentialism just doesn't. Um, he, in fact, argues that existentialism isn't a philosophy, um, and, and this is more like philosophy nerd stuff for folks who are sort of casual listeners to this. What he means by that existentialism is more of an ideology than a philosophy. And what he means by that is that existentialism doesn't have its own uh, grounding that can allow it to exist as like a totalizing philosophy that can sort of explain and engage with the entire world, right? Existentialism is dealing with a very specific part of our reality. 
Um, while Marxism is, you know, a grand theory of, of history and economics and, and class. Um, so when he says it's the dominant philosophy, he one thinks that it's correct. Um, but two, it's the dominant philosophy wherein if you actually want to engage with philosophy, you either have to accept or reject it. You have to deal with it. You can't just you know imagine that Marxism, if you really want to do serious philosophy, you have to either reject or uh, you know deal with Marxism as, as a philosophy, unlike you know you can ignore some other uh, <laughs> you know, smaller questions like you know, I'm sure Ben would be a better at coming up with examples of that. but I mean, he basically argues yeah, that you don't, you, don't, you don't have to have a uh, I don't know, you don't have to have a take on whether uh, numbers, uh, objectively exists prior to, uh, to, to human minds uh, yeah. conceiving of them, you know, like that, that's, that's not something that, you know, that's, that's necessary in the same sense to engage with. Yeah. And, and so what he argues here though, is really interesting because historically uh, most people actually saw existentialism and Marxism, not only as incompatible, but actually in opposition to one another um, that, you know, uh, that the, these, yeah, these were just completely different worldviews, and there's some like history of philosophy reasons for that. Um, you know, going back, you know, to Hegel, basically, as you know, most of these things do in continental philosophy. But uh, not to get bogged down in that, um, he makes a really interesting argument that for existentialism to actually be realized as like an like an existing practice um, for most people to be like just the way that we're living our lives. Uh, you to have a philosophy of freedom, you need Marxism to create the conditions for that to exist. Um, and it reminds me, and I don't want to get into Derrida stuff, but it reminds me, Derrida wrote a really bad book called Spectres of Marx. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's too postmodern. I'm sorry. Um, which, which, but, which by, well, by, by the way, I mean, this is like that, that clip we started with, you know, was, was Natalie Wynn making fun of, uh, Jordan Peterson for equating uh, for equating Marxism and uh, postmodernism, uh, and which is like amazing. If you watch Peterson's video about this, like he claims that the postmodernists were student revolutionaries from 1968, who after information came out about how bad the Soviet Union was, nobody could be like a, a Marxist in public life anymore, so they made up postmodernism, and every single part of that is true. Like it's, it's false, right? Like like all these guys, uh, Foucault, Derrida. Uh, those two guys were both like, neither of them were students in 1968. Like they already had faculty positions. They'd already published postmodern mm -hmm. books before 1968. Uh, the information like about like the revelations about Stalin uh, in the Soviet Union uh, had come out 12 years earlier, 1956 with Khrushchev's secret speech. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who was still, you know, Marxist in 1968, like Sartre, who, by the way, had been very critical of the Soviet Union for a long time, uh, wrote mm -hmm. a book about, you know, Khrushchev's invasion of Hungary, um, were, you know, however they felt about that, they'd long since sorted that out. Uh, and as we saw in that that video clip, you know, these these guys uh, hated each other, you know, like Sartre <laughs> and uh, And that book, because I've heard, I've heard people bring that up sometimes when they're trying to justify the Jordan Peterson shit. It's like, oh, uh, Derrida wrote a book about Marx. Like, can't yeah, motherfucker read the book, see what he says, because like all that he's getting from Marx in that book, like the only like Marxist thing that he's affirming in that in that Spectres of Marx book is just sort of like a vague critical spirit or something like that. Like, yeah, sort of it's a critical that. spirit of like all that's existing, right? It's sort of, and he uses, um, you know, he talks about ghosts a lot, and like 
some people like I like Derrida as as a writer sometimes just because he he gets a metaphor and he'll just like stick with it until the end. But anyways, he does have a line about about Marxism um, that I always liked is um, in a sense it's like he says it's the only suicidal philosophy, and what he means by that is the only philosophy that like seeks to make itself irrelevant. Yeah, um, <laughs> which I've always found to be a great line, and I think um, though a little bit more something I could stand a little bit on more on its own two feet is a little line from, uh, from search for a method um, where like uh, Sartre is sort of going through this idea of the philosophy of freedom and, and its relation to Marxism he says, as soon as there will exist for everyone, a margin of real freedom beyond the production of life, Marxism will have lived out its span. A philosophy of freedom will take its place, but we have no means, no intellectual instrument, no concrete experience, which allows us to conceive of this freedom or of this philosophy. And this is like another part of like Sartre's, and I'd be curious what you think about this kind of yeah. historical argument about philosophy, um, where he, he basically is making the argument that, you know, philosophy is almost always like a little bit late. Um, you know, like it's it's always a little bit late in the sense that like when somebody has the time to think about it and to write it down um, and have it disseminated, like the world is mo moving already in a certain direction. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that philosophy can't, you know, exist is not worth uh, engaging with, obviously. But it's that, you know, these arguments that are being had by philosophers and thinkers are happening in a certain place in time and then are being sort of engaged with um, a bit, a bit, you know, a bit later. Um, but Marxism, uh, for, for Sartre, why he thinks it's really unique and it is important is because it's a way of thinking and engaging um, with the world um, rather than something that's extremely dogmatic. Um, yeah, which, which, which is, yeah, which is the point of search for a method. Uh, so I, I, I do want to, uh, uh, I do want to talk about that, you know, flesh out some of that point and kind of wrap up our, uh, our discussion uh, about this. Uh, but uh, we are um, trying to uh, to force ourselves to be strict about this uh, this hour and a half thing before we go to the uh, uh, the post game. So we'll we'll finish up. Uh, you know, by the way, I should say, I love the people who watch this show because, like, I'm I'm I, I'm always saying, like, I. I, I think that this is an incredibly like smart and thoughtful audience, but it's also hilarious to see people in the chat getting like angry at each other about like uh, the real, you know, uh, how much Sartre was getting from Heidegger or not, you know, which which is something that like that I don't know awesome. how many chat sections on YouTube you find where people are getting angry about. Well, that. people should know though; uh, they'll, they'll definitely want to get over the post game because we've only just scratched the surface of uh, we're doing all of Sartre's like apologies for the pretty brutal critique of Marxism that he's about to lay down. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, we're going to get into that critique. And also uh, we have time. I want, I want uh, David to weigh in on uh, the, uh, the, the new, um, the new woke progressive version of the CIA uh, <laughs> and, uh, and some Biden stuff. Uh, but, uh, but we will do that in the post game. Uh so uh, that is patrons already have the YouTube link uh, for that. So we're going to jump on that in, uh, in just a minute. Uh, thank, uh, thank you so much, David. Uh, always awesome uh, hanging out. Thank you, everybody, for, uh, for watching. Left is best.